Welcome to Hammerama. I'm Steven, who virtually podcasts for the ultimate good of humanity. And I'm Al, who selfishly podcasts only to inflict my unhealthy obsessions on an unsuspecting world. We are the two opposite sides of Hammerama, a split personality divided by 14,000 kilometers and which views the world of Hammer Horror from opposite sides of the globe. Our opening track was the intro to the wonderful House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reber Clark. Hammerama is part of Stephen's award-nominated Diecast movie podcast, and as such, the subject of our discussion has been decided by the cast of a die. Stephen formulated a six, which is the experimental 1970s. And so we get in touch with our feminine sides for 1971's Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Everyone knows there are two sides to the infamous Dr. Jekyll. By day, the man. By night, the monster. Put a woman in your life, a good woman, and one day you'll wake up and you'll see a changed man. Now, Hammer believe you, too, are ready for a change. An absolutely complete change. This is the testament of Dr. Henry Jekyll. Male. 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 It's Hyde, isn't it? How is your brother? He hasn't been himself of late. This is the new Dr. Jekyll, the most evil woman you'll ever see. This is the sensuous Sister Hyde, the most evil man you'll ever meet. Stay away from her. She means you great harm. Why? I just feel it, that's all. Dr. Jekyll, Sister Hyde. Man or woman, or both. In this film, you will actually see the sinister Dr. Jekyll change in mind and body into the totally evil Sister Hyde. It is I who exist, Dr. Jekyll, not you. It is I who will be rid of you. Rid of you, rid of you. Hammer invites you to share the agony of a man whose body is possessed by a strange passion to murder and beyond. They must be female, no more than 20 years old. There will be a different kind of victim tonight. And then the tug of war will be ended between us. A fascinating situation, don't you think? It'll be interesting to see who wins. Dr. Jekyll, played by Ralph Bates, wants to cure the world of diseases. When his good friend, Professor Robertson, Gerald Sim, tells him that he will never live long enough to do this. This sends Jekyll down a path to try and extend his life. During his obsessive research for an elixir of light, he realizes that he needs female hormones from fresh cadavers. When his supplier, Burke and Hare, have their fresh cadaver business abruptly closed, Jekyll decides to become his own supplier. After his experiment in insect works, Jekyll decides to try and experiment on himself as any self-respecting scientist would do. After taking the serum, Jekyll is transformed into a woman, Martine Beswick. She goes by the name of Mrs. Hyde. Jekyll kills more people in order to maintain its effect. This causes a battle of wills for the control of the body. Who will win, Dr. Jekyll or Sister Hyde? I'm on the edge of my seat. Oh, that's right. I've seen this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try not to spoil anything with the synopsis, you know, because it, like we always say, for somebody out there, there's actually a lot of people out there have never seen this film. What are your initial thoughts on Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde? Maybe apart from the obvious, um, I love Brian Clemens. Um, and to me, the writer of The Avengers. Mm -hmm. 
And just by the way, everyone, think British spy-fi, not US spandexed superheroics. The writer of Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. And the golden voyage of Sinbad, featuring our friend Kurt Christian and Caroline Munro. Um, I don't think this guy can do any wrong. And Clemens' collaboration with Hammer seems almost inevitable. A match made in horror heaven, you could say. But it's just a damn shame that it had to happen just a fraction too late. Because his particular injection of wit and verve and style was exactly what the by then hemorrhaging Hammer actually needed. Clemens' characters have inbuilt quirks and kinks, which makes them seem all the more real, and their dialogue sparkles with quips, barbs, and sly, sometimes shocking, double meaning. Of course, I think we will agree that Martine owns this film with every line and facial expression. But I also love how the swarthily masculine-looking Ralph Bates really tones down his performance to become the more demure, submissive personality. We just know that he's probably never actually going to win the struggle with his better half. Those are good thoughts, Al, and a lot of those I concur with. I mean, I know from when I did my interview with Martine, which a lot of people can listen to because it came out prior to this episode, um, she really liked the writing of Brian Clemens also and, and enjoyed the wit of the script and the humor that was involved with it. So I think she got what they were going for. And she actually wanted them to go even farther than they, than they decided to do, um, which we'll never know. It could have been interesting to see if they would have followed up on some extra ideas that she had. Martin has mentioned that in other interviews, and it's always made me wonder, what did she actually have in mind? How, how was she going to take things further? But uh, I guess we'll, we'll always just have to wonder. That is true. I mean, my initial thoughts on the film, I've never seen this growing up. And again, I've seen this film quite a few times over the years. So it's one of those ones I like, like to revisit periodically. And you're just captivated by the performance of both leads, Ralph Bates and Martine Beswick. And... They're both able to work so well together, even though they're really not together, so to speak, in the screen. So do you truly believe that they are the same person? You got to give credit to both of them, but it is, I agree with you. It's when you see Martine dressed in the red. Lady in red. And it just pops so much on the screen. You know, and her personality and her um, natural um, regalness comes through. I enjoyed the cinematography so much, how Norman Warwick was able to portray and show all these different things. It's great, and um, I'm, I know we'll talk more about the cinematography as we go along, but it was just very well filmed. I think it's a movie that you could say was either ahead of its time, behind its time, before it could have been a huge hit. It was just, it just came out at a, a unique time frame. It's funny how you can say that about probably just about every film that we're going to talk about in this particular category, the experimental 1970s. You're absolutely right. Martin obviously knew that this was a wonderful opportunity to just seize with both hands. And boy, does she. Oh, she does. And you just got to love it. Oh, I do. And if I was to talk about my favorite part, as I've just implied, my initial default would be to just about any scene that Martin's sister Hyde is in. But I'm going to give Ralph Bates some love instead. Now, you just mentioned, Stephen, that the two actors don't share a scene, but I've actually picked a scene where I believe the two characters actually do. There's a fairly innocuous scene where Jekyll has an encounter with Howard when he's got his arms full of parcels and they bump into each other. Now, this is a perfect example of how this kind of brief exchange can be given so much color and nuance by two excellent actors. Howard is trying to be courteous under the silent, hard stare which Jekyll gives him. It's a really uncomfortable sort of moment. But when asked how his sister is, Jekyll finally replies, Excellent. I am in excellent health. 
understandably Howard looks really confused and it's a chilling indication of just how close to the surface Hyde has actually become and in fact she actually breaks through when Jekyll is compelled to tenderly touch the other man's face. So this is a scene where both title characters are very much present but only one actor is performing the parts. Oh I agree it not only reaches out to touch his face but also the way he says Howard mm. it was yes. such lovingness to it and leaving Howard totally nonplussed as to what is going <laughs> on <laughs> and as he looks at the corset store that Dr. Jekyll is leaving he's just he is just totally flabbergasted I mean it's uh he's the fact that he's actually leaving that sort of establishment with his arm full of purchases. Once again, that's Brian Clemens' wit just uh, just shining through. We talk about them not sharing the screen. There are some times where they are together because of different hands being used in the other actor's body. So technically, they're yes, both there. Yes, true. Are they actually either Ralph Bates or Martin's hands in that scene? Or are they hand actors? Well, from my understanding from... Things I've certain I don't think I asked Martine this when I interviewed her, but I know from other interviews that she'd done that I believe that was Ralph's hand at the particular scene okay. where she was exploring in the mirror, and uh, so yes, it was, it was that was Ralph, and I'm assuming that the other times it would have been her. So that's obviously what she's referring to when she says they had a very close working relationship. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Okay. The transformation scene to me is still my favorite moment because. With any Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or in this case, Sister Hyde story, the transformation is the key element of it. You know, it, it, it really helps make or break the movie. And this one was just fantastically shot and done. You know, both actors being on the set at the same time and the way they work the camera to go from Dr. Jekyll to Sister Hyde. I, I don't know how they did it exactly. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's from a film school background or a cinematographer that can be like, well, Steve, it's obviously done this way. Uh, please write in and let us know. <laughs> you know, that way we'll know for sure. I'm fine to be educated on it, but also part of me doesn't mind not knowing because I love the make-believe and the fantastical elements of film. You know, sometimes not knowing the tricks is, is fun also, but trying to guess what they are. The way both actors portrayed it and did it, and it was just so seamlessly done. I can only agree, and every time I've watched this film, I've really watched that scene very, very carefully to try and work it out. And I think I know, but I can't be sure. It certainly involves some really quick and careful sleight of hand, almost in a theatrical way, a sort of stagecraft exercise almost, and I think that really suits this particular film. Oh, I definitely agree, and uh, one of the, the best shots in cinema, you know, for a, a Dr. Jekyll-type film, this is right up, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a better transformation scene without special effects. Agreed. I think, you know, if it was a more traditional telling of the story, you'd expect to see, I don't know, a more visceral, more gruesome sort of transformation. Can I do my reviews now? <laughs> oh, please, Al, do the reviews. I know you're just chomping at the bit. <laughs> okay. As usual, everyone, I'm going to start with a review from the same film. <laughs> I hope it's the same film. <laughs> I think I, one day we're going to have to do an outtakes episode. <sighs> reviews. Okay, as usual, I'm going to begin with a review from the same year that the film was released. And this is from Variety magazine in December 1971. And it says, Director Roy Ward Baker has set a good pace, built tension nicely, and played it straight, so that it all seems credible. He tops chills and gruesome murders with quite a lot of subtle fun. Bates and Beswick, Strong, attractive personalities bear a strange resemblance to each other, making the transitions entirely believable. Hmm. Okay. Written so long ago, but um, that still holds very much true today, I think. Well, I agree. I mean, transformation sequence, I tell you, it, it stands the test of time. Hmm. Seems to. 
Now my second review is from January 2018 and this is in Starburst magazine. It's actually a review of the Blu-ray release and it writes, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is one of the most ingenious adaptations of a classic horror tale. It's a daring variant on the Stevenson tale and courageous in that it focuses on the complications of gender and emotional needs. Martin Beswick creates an air of sexual magnetism and cunning that offsets the Doctor's neurotic predicament. It's not an easy thing to pull off, but Beswick steals the show. 8 out of 10. And just coincidentally, I still have my very first issue of Starburst, Starburst number 1, which I think I bought in 1978, and uh, hmm, just wonder if that's worth anything now. But anyway... Everything's always worth something if you can find somebody willing to pay enough money for it. <laughs> True enough. So those reviews, I think, typify basically what we have been saying, Stephen, and that Martin steals the show, and the resemblance between the two actors. Yeah, she does. And she basically talked about uh, she was getting, getting um, Ralph Bates more in touch with his feminine side. Ah. And <laughs> yes. And um, getting him to be you know more like her. Or he just naturally was, or maybe that's the way he was trying to adapt his character. Because as the movie goes on, his character is becoming more and more feminine mm. um, in his traits and the characteristics. And the thing that strikes me about Ralph Bates, as I mentioned before, he's a very masculine looking actor. And a lesser actor would have just traded on, on those looks and done the very male sort of performances. But... Ralph Bates does anything but. Uh, just think of his Giles Barton in Lust for a Vampire, where he's basically playing a sniveling little creep. He makes himself look really unattractive, even though he clearly isn't. And in this film, rather than being a sort of uber-masculine Dr. Jekyll, he's clearly the less confident side of their personality and he just pulls that off wonderfully so i think it's great that we're giving his performance some attention because otherwise it would just be only too easy to make this episode the martin beswick appreciation society with both actors they're really realizing the truth mm. of their character which written on the page what they're trying to portray instead of worrying about mm. their own personal image because that's not what you're there for of course some actors get away with being able to basically portray what some people would think is themselves, but yet it's still a character. Like John Wayne, everybody says John Wayne never played anybody. You know, John Wayne was playing characters, but John Wayne itself was a character. You can look at it. So I think in this case, here's somebody who's able to allow himself to go into the role fearlessly. You got to appreciate that. And I think we're giving him the necessary love that he should be given for these roles. Mm, that's an excellent point. Now, I'm going to go on to connections. This is the third of Hammer's passes at adapting the Robert Louis Stevenson story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The first was the comedy The Ugly Duckling in 1959 with Bernard Breslau, and then The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll a year later with Paul Massey. This more serious take introduced the concept of an ugly Henry Jekyll transforming into a handsome Edward Hyde. But of course, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde was to go one step further in 1971. But I'm going to talk about a disconnection to the Hammerverse rather than linking this film to others as I usually do. As we know, Universal Horror drew to a close with what fans refer to as monster mashups, where their most popular monstrous icons would get together, either in each other's house, or to be terrorised by Abbott and Costello. But Hammer never had its own showdown between the Count and the Creature, or Oliver Reed's Werewolf, and any of its mummies, which is probably lucky for them. Lizard Lady's Megara the Gorgon and Jacqueline Pierce's Slinky Reptile never had a hissy fight. And all of this is a source of regret for many. But in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, not only do we have a representation of horror's most celebrated split personality, but we also have the Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper, although I'm not sure if he's actually named as such. And we also have history's most famous murdering body snatchers, Burke and Hare. 
Now, though the dates, the locations, and accurate depictions don't really bear out, here, very loosely speaking, we have an unholy trinity of Victorian horrors in the same film, making Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde Hammer's only monster mashup. And I'll add to that that in one scene, we even have a throwaway reference to Sweeney Todd, the demon barber. So that's four 19th century horrors and one film, sports fans. I love that. I love that connection. You picked an interesting poster out for us to talk about. Because there's many different posters out there, as people know. For I really enjoyed the one you picked. And you picked the one, it's mostly black and white. Dr. Jekyll on the top holding a knife, Sister Hyde on the bottom holding a, a knife, and you got Big Ben, you got, looks like Dr. Jekyll walking at the night in front of it, you got the Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde in red, and you got Dr. Jekyll's hand when it's on the side of Sister Hyde's in red. It shows them, as we said, who's going to dominate, who's go whose will is going to be stronger to control the body. And you can get that right there from the two images that they're both fighting over what the control of the body. And then, as you said, it ties in there with the Whitechapel murders going on with Jack the Ripper. The only, the only thing that's weird for me is the red hand of Dr. Jekyll, because it's, a, it's uh, I'm not sure if that's a little bit of an overkill or if they could have left that part out. You're the artiste. Alistair, what do you think about the poster? <laughs> well, Stephen, I was initially scared that you might have covered all my points there, but I'm really glad that you made a thing about the red hand. This poster is another instance where I've suggested that we bypass the British poster. I mean, it's moody and it's atmospheric, but I don't like what it does to Martin's face, even though it's effective. And of course, when I watched the movie again, I realized that uh, that shot of Martine is actually from the scene where she's looking into the fractured mirror, which is a very creepy, effective scene, but... Um, it's not how I like to think of Martin. So this is the Belgian poster, which you and I briefly talked about over at Monster Kid Radio, and which you can see, as usual, on our Facebook post. Now, as I've said, I, I always appreciate good graphic design in my film posters. And this is a clever composition with, as you said, a skillfully painted Jekyll and Hyde in grayscale, forming almost mirror images of each other, both plunging blades towards unseen victims or perhaps their other selves. Also, as you said, the poster is two color, black and red, and in the lower part of the poster, that forearm, rendered as a red silhouette, reaches downwards. Now, prosaically speaking, it's there because the reference they've used for the painting of Martine, she's actually stabbing Professor Robertson and it's his arm flung up to protect himself. So that's, that's why it's there. But in the context of the poster, as you say, at first sight, this seems to represent Jekyll intending to throttle his other self. But if you turn the poster around so that Hyde is literally on top, then the hand becomes Jekyll's in a desperate attempt to fend off her killing stripe. So once again, this image is just rich with double meaning. And this downward plunging arm is actually balanced, in my view, by the vertical iconography of the top half of Big Ben, and then the back view of the skulking Jekyll slash Jack the Ripper from the British poster. So there's a lot going on here, apart from what initially attracted me, which was the uh, beautifully rendered likenesses of the two actors. You know, though, when you explained it, and I turned it upside down so I could look at it with the red hand being upward, I get it. I like that. I, I like that this is a poster that you could ponder and, and turn and... Looking at things from a different perspective. Well, exactly. And, you know, it, it, there's every chance that I'm overthinking this and that I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's how I would justify it. Speaking of Martine, listeners, we have a treat for you. Unlike last time where you heard me just ramble a little bit talking about what it was like when I interviewed her and some of those different questions, we decided, because the interview's already out, and you can listen to the full thing, like we said earlier, if the episode is out already, um, to give you an excerpt of Martine talking about Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde for your pleasure. What was it like working with Ralph Bates, who died so tragically young? I know. I loved him. He was really great. He was a terrific actor to work with, really. And it was interesting because we really didn't look, if you take each 
part of our face we really didn't look the same but because we were working together that thing you know you know you start to look like a dog <laughs> <laughs> you know we started to look i mean we we just kind of because we were hanging out together and we were working together so closely i think we just started to look like each other except that we if you take it specifically we weren't we didn't have the same nose we didn't have the same eyes we didn't have nothing you know but it all came together it was really interesting really interesting when you're doing the initial transformation when he was going from him to you and you guys are looking in the like the mirror he, you know, how was it done? Because it looked so seamless. Like, were you, you know, like, cause it-, it was, do you know, I don't know how he did it. That was one of the most brilliant scenes that Roy Ward Baker did was absolutely brilliant. And it was like, I mean, going, wow, that's really, none of, none of us moved. He moved the camera around. I, I mean, I still don't know how it was done, but I was really, awestruck at that. I think all of us were like, wow, that was that's a fantastic scene. Really, really good. And that absolutely is a pleasure. And obviously that is a diecast movie episode which you must listen to. That wonderful accent for those that all I'm sure everybody knows that's a hammer fan, but for those that don't know, she born in Jamaica, lived there for a good good portion of her youth. And we talk about that what was it like growing up in Jamaica and everything else like that in the interview? So there's a good part about her backstory. So it's not just films. It's really about what she was, her childhood was like. And now everyone, as another special treat, I'd like to introduce you all to Kylie Klein-Nixon. Kylie is a journalist, columnist, film reviewer. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of all kinds of genre films, and she's met a bewildering amount of stars, including Sir Christopher Lee. Kylie, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me on. Oh, look, it's an absolute pleasure. Listeners, Kylie and I used to work together quite closely for a number of years. Uh, We now live on different islands, even though we're in the same country, so we haven't seen each other in a long, long time. But Kylie and I used to, I think you won't mind me saying, geek out. Yeah. Geek out on a regular basis over, uh, over, I don't know, science fiction. Sci-fi. And horror. Marvel movies and comics. And it was always a lovely little break during the day. Definitely. Of work to go and uh, talk to you about. I think it was my main reason for going into work, actually. But uh, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> So it's great to be able to do it again. Oh, I know. And I'm so excited about this podcast too. I'm so excited about your everything you've done about Hammer films. And it's just, oh, I love it. I love it so much. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. So I knew that we had to get Kylie onto the show. And it was really just a case of finding the right movie. It just had to be Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. So I wanted to talk about the sort of Victorian influence in in these films of the 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 late sixties and um and why that this sort of period these filmmakers were looking back to fifty odd years before mm-hmm. and what that was sort of saying about that sixties culture, the counterculture and and things that were going on then in the specifically in the UK. Yeah. Because it was always strange to me that all those, you know, those Hammer films were mostly sort of set in that period or there were there were lots of harks back to that period. You know, in the 60s and 70s, there was this big sort of return to Victoriana. And I, I feel like that was a culture kind of feeding on itself a little bit. Like that Victorian period was sort of, it was one of real social upheaval as you know like it's the end of that agrarian age and that and the beginning of the industrial age and people sort of flooding into the cities where conditions were just absolutely dreadful um you know there's poverty and overcrowding and crime and smog and all those wonderfully creepy awful things there you know there's massive cholera outbreaks in London in, in 32 and 66. There's, you know, where there's sort of talking about dead people piling up in the, in the streets and the slums and stuff. 
And at the same time, there's sort of other real-life horrors unfolding in London. And, you know, you've got Jack the Ripper and Burke and Hare up in, in Edinburgh yeah. and also sort of things like literal cities of the dead being built outside the, the main city, you know, out in Highgate, Nunhead in London and Pierre Lachaise in Paris. So, so English-speaking culture kind of became obsessed with death. At that time, I, you know, this is the, the birth of spiritualism yeah. started then. You know, you've got the Fox sisters in New York talking to the dead, that kind of mm. stuff. Um, and the result, I think, is that sort of ominous, overbearing, emotional writing that you get of people like Edgar Allan Poe and Wilkie Collins and Stoker and mm. Sharon and Lafano and Henry James. And, you know, the ghost story becomes, it really comes into its own then, you know, even, even, you know, the greatest writer of that period, Dickens, his most famous book is a ghost story. I think at the same time back in, you know, in the 60s, it's a sim, not, this, not quite as big a period of social upheaval, but there is that sort of mm-hmm. sense of that you're losing something of the past and that the change is really radical. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that Hammer sort of started looking back to Victorian stories. And I kind of see it as a sort of knee-jerk across the whole of pop culture, from fashion to film, um, against psychedelia and against hippie culture. Um, and nowhere was that sort of more evident than in Hammer Horrors, um, where you kind of get this faux conservative vibe sort of coming out. And really it was just a sort of psychosexual freak out over free love. The whole whole way of life was just being radically changed. And the, one of the main things that were changing was changing was um the role of women in the society. It was a huge change. They you know, the the pill and um the women's movement, women going into the workplace. I mean women poor women had always worked, obviously. And um poor women, women of colour, they'd, they'd always had to work. But now it was, it was everybody, everybody, all the women wanted to go have their own pin money. They didn't need men anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, um, you know, I think also Hammer really taps into that. Mm. And that's another reason why so many of their female characters are, you know, where they go back to this, rep- this sort of repressed Victorian thing, you've got a different kind of, of, woman in that period you know who there's more of that sort of gasping and shrieking and fainting or you're playing up the sexual liberation sort of side of things and you is it Camilla is that the movie that it's the book anyway that's the um Sheridan Lafano book absolutely Vampire Lovers was their adaptation that's right yeah yeah I just uh, wanted to make a reference specifically to Martin Beswick's sister Hyde. I just wondered what you thought about her. She is why, even though it has been 40 years since I saw that film, it's seared into my mind. Like, she, <laughs> I remember thinking, why is she the bad guy? <laughs> I kind of love her. Why wouldn't he want to be her? This makes no sense. That's my memory as a child. Like, why, why are you trying to get rid of her? She's awesome. That makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, that's an aspect of the film that I don't think many people realize. And that is that as time goes on, Jekyll does want to be her. Yeah. You know, there's really no great advantage in him staying as as the meek and mild Jekyll when you can be Sister Hyde. Yeah. And I felt like that that film must have been so transgressive at the time. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. transgressing on almost every level you know you've the on gender politics and sexuality and also they you know that that sort of embracing viciousness and callousness it's just mm. it's just a really a, a wonderful film i am remembering it so i'm not sure how good it is on the gender stuff but yeah in terms of you know the the big conversations that we're having about that now that we've moved on so far hopefully from it being a joke because of course in the UK there, there was mm-hmm. there's been a really long tradition as well I think that actually goes back to the Victorian period or well, even earlier of men dressing as women being funny and um and so he doesn't obviously this is he actually turns into a woman here but there's got to be some kind of resonance of that a man being a woman it's hilarious or kind of creepy or strange but I felt like I feel like this film has a fascinating take on that anyway it most certainly does. And just going back to what you just said, Carly, I think when um, Brian Clemens actually came up with the idea 
originally it was treated as a joke apparently everyone laughed uproariously at the thought of Mm -hmm. dr jekyll taking the potion and turning into a woman but once they got that all out of the way he actually went away and he wrote a surprisingly serious um, thought-provoking take on the whole thing i mean it might sound like a humorous premise but it's actually played completely straight and i think that's one of one of this film's strengths Mm -hmm. yeah I actually have a very strange memory as a of a child or of a young person watching that and and because they looked so similar yes being momentarily confused about how they <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to say it now because it's so obvious but but you know I think I would have been it's like 7 or 8 maybe even that young watching it and just being like what did they do there? How did they do that? Because they do look very similar, don't they? They they look incredibly similar. I don't blame the young you at all for being confused because one, one of the other strengths of this film is that they have a very, very subtle transformation sequence. How did they, how did they do that? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that, that that's what it is. And I think, I think too, that, that, that there was, like, I do think that fashion was a big driver of that harking back to the Victorian stuff as well because um you know the 60s is synonymous with mini skirts and and this kind of dressing for the male gaze you know Mm -hmm. kind of keyhole tops and 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 that kind of thing and then as the women's movement starts to grow up and hemlines kind of drop to the floor and i remember reading lots of people say you know um men at the time bemoaning the a-line a-line skirt and stuff (laughs) like that but um my auntie talks about how when she she was in the um, UK in the 60s, they used to go down to Portobello Market and oh, there would be wow. these giant bins of of Victorian nighties and and dresses and stuff like that. And she, and I, she sort of would say, I think of it with horror, that they would grab armfuls of these things and take them back, cut them up and make them into their dresses and stuff. Oh, and so wow. they were, you know, taking off the sleeves of these, you know, mutton chop sleeves and putting them on. The whole culture had that big kind of flip to this sort of Victorian look. And I feel like, you know, the, that was sort of came out of the women's movement. Mm, yeah. Um, and so for that, for the female character in that movie to be so sort of dominant and, and she's the, the hero in a way, in a weird way. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, she's sort of almost like the, 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 the nightmare that men have of the <laughs> women's movement and and um yeah the the kind of end result if you like yeah she embodies that fear and insecurity yeah. that uh, men had that that women might treat men the way that men treat women yeah <laughs> yeah i was just thinking about the fashions in in the film itself after the first transformation sister hyde actually pulls down some red curtains and she fashions a dress for herself, basically, on the spot. So that just made me think of your story about Portobello Road, where they'd take these clothes and they'd yeah. cut them and, you know, fashion them fashion them into, into something else. Yeah, that's wonderful. There's a whole load of kind of interesting social aspects to that, to, mm-hmm. why, to why that look became so prevalent and why sort of Hammer would hark back to it when they could have easily told that story and actually probably more easily told that story in a modern setting, you know, with um, him being a modern scientist or whatever. I mean, they didn't have to take the... They've already changed that Victorian story, that Jekyll and Hyde story, so radically. There's no reason that they had to make it also set in ye olde days. That's an extremely good point. And I was thinking, you know, just when we're talking about fashion, that other thing that doesn't change probably is that the men's hairstyles, reasonably <laughs> long hair. When you look at Ralph Bates' character. That's right. He's got that shell here, doesn't he? Yeah, which is also not at all out of place in the time when the film was actually made. So once again, at this time in history, you have this harkening back to the earlier Victorian period. That's right. And those big lamb chops. Yeah. Um, sideburns were really popular then. Yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's just quite funny that my parents were married in 
969, I think. Mm-hmm. And they have matching hairdos. <laughs> <laughs> These very sweet hairdos, very similar to his hairdo in the movie, actually. And they both have the same hair, which is kind of funny considering what we're talking about. There was a sort of <laughs> blending of, or de-genderizing, I suppose, gen- yeah, of fashions and looks. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> And it wouldn't be very long, too, long into the 70s when men started wearing makeup. So that kind of his character mm. being the taking the quote unquote feminine mm-hmm. sort of simpering feminine sort of role yeah. is kind of a precursor, I guess, of that big, you know, what would come later with Bowie and the whole kind of glam scene and mm. stuff. Men playing with that feminine, those feminine looks and. For Bowie, at least, feminine sort of behaviours as well. I think it was quite formative for me, actually, when I think about it, because I much prefer, personally, men like that. So, well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I aspire to be like her, so maybe, I don't know, maybe it had a bigger impact on me than I realised as a child. <laughs> I think that you are like her. We'll take the murdering out. Yeah, I'm not going to say, I haven't murdered anyone, <laughs> brutally killed anyone. <laughs> But, um, you know, I have made a few dresses out of curtains before, so I'm on my way. You are. <laughs> you know what I can't wait for, Alistair? What's that, Stephen? Merchandise. Oh, yes. Merchandise. You know, because merchandise is something you can take with you and go anywhere <laughs> and have fun with, um, depending on what kind of merchandise it is. Like, we talked about Dracula socks, <laughs> and we've talked about Quatermass quarters. <laughs> we've talked about podcasts. Uh, we talked about um, books that you could read to get more information. I'm curious to what Alistair is going to be bringing up, but I was looking through merchandise for Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde online, and I really couldn't find much of anything. And I was thinking, what would I want to have? And, I, and this isn't a jokey one like the Quatermass and the Pit one, but this is something I really, and maybe it's out there and I missed it. I would love to have, either it could be bookends or it could be a statue set oh. of the transformation scene. Hmm. So on one side, imagine if, imagine if this is bookends. You have Dr. Jekyll looking into the mirror, which would be where you put the books at, you know, that part there. And on the other bookend, or again, they could be combined together, you have Sister Hyde looking at the mirror. So you have both sides of the transformation and in the mirror, you see the image of the other one. So if you have Sister Hyde looking in the mirror, she sees Dr. Jekyll. And Dr. Jekyll looking in the mirror sees Sister Hyde. That is really clever. And it actually just gave me a flashback to a scene in the film which we haven't mentioned. And that is when uh, it cuts to the clock with the male and the female figure. And as the female figure comes out, that's when Hyde is in the ascendance. But yeah... This film has real potential for merchandise, which hasn't been realized. I once again stretched to find something that I could call related merchandise. So I decided to go off in search of another instance of a Sister Hyde. Taking a detour, a wide detour, around 2003's softcore Dr. Jekyll and Mistress Hyde, I arrived at the best thing which I think writer-producer Stephen Moffat has ever done, and that includes his Sherlock, Dracula, and most of his Doctor Who work. In 2007, he wrote the six-episode series Jekyll, starring James Nesbitt for BBC Television. This is the first, and for me, most effective of Moffat's updating of a classical fictional character, and it bubbles with wit, energy, and genuine dread turning this tired, transformative trope into a cool change. I know that it's time for a cool change. And the reveal of the female Hyde is one of this series' greatest twists. She doesn't disappoint, scaring us and intimidating even our fearsome main character. Moffat directly references Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde in the BBC promotional material for this series, and he praises it. So let's just say that there's a direct link with our pick this month, and move swiftly on. But either way, Jekyll is a winning formula, available on DVD and currently streaming on Amazon. 
Have you ever seen it, Stephen? No, but I think I'm going to, I know it's going to be next in my queue to watch now. So I'm going Excellent. Because I like Stephen Moffat's work, so it's, it's already a win-win for me. And I guess James Nisbet has a wide range of work, but sometimes he appears as a cuddly, likable sort of Irish chap. But his hide is going to scare you, I promise. And one thing I wanted to bring up as we reach our closing thoughts on the movie, and it's something I think of all the Dr. Jekyll-type movies, is... It's to me, but Dr. Jekyll always seems to start off with some noble intent and goes down a dark path and ends up having to take either an injection, drink a serum, or whatever, is like chasing the dragon. To me, it's a parable of drug addiction written by Robert Louis Stevenson years and years ago. So I'm wondering if this was his tale of somebody being changed by chasing that dragon, chasing that serum, chasing that drug. Of course, what do drugs, a lot of people think of drugs bring out the worst of them in some people's, in a lot of people's minds. Or it changes people, usually not for the better, almost always for the worst, whatever you want to look at it. He'd start off with noble reasons because he wanted to cure all diseases. And he ends up becoming a, a murderer. And because of that, and this was before Sister Hyde came into existence really or like was was really dominating him is just because he wanted to get that thing he was already hiring people to take out other people so to speak and he knew that um you're just as culpable and uh, i think it's just because he needed that fix needed that drug and i don't know if that, that, to me that's an interesting way of looking at it. i don't know if you ever thought of it that way i think that's a fascinating way of looking at it it's kind of known that um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came to Robert Louis Stevenson in a nightmare. And he was extremely ill for most of his life. And as far as we know, it could have been a drug-induced nightmare. And I'm not talking about addiction necessarily. I'm just talking about probably one of the many, many treatments that um, he was forced to take. We've named this particular category in our die roll the experimental 1970s for good reason, as it not only references the more explicit content which Hammer were now able to put on the screen, but also the more unconventional explorations that they made while they were producing films for this new decade of the 1970s. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde strikes me as both threadbare and opulent at the same time. Clearly the sets are very limited. All of them are in studio with no location filming. And it almost gives the impression of scenes involving the same actors being very much shot in blocks, television style. You can almost imagine the scenery crew lurking just out of shot, waiting to swoop in and strike the set as soon as the actors have left to quickly erect the next one. But having said that, the all interior shoot creates a feeling of fog-bound claustrophobia, which I think really suits the subject. And the opulence, for me, comes from where Hammer have always excelled, and that is in the quality of the actors and the performances they give. The casting in this film strikes me as note perfect, and I'm putting our two leads, who have already showered praise on, to our one side to talk about the supporting cast. Now, Gerald Sim as the lecherous but avuncular Professor Robertson, Lewis Flander as the prissy Howard, whom Jekyll can't stand, but Hyde inexplicably seems to genuinely care for, Susan Broderick as the idealistic but innocent Sarah, and then there's Philip Maddock as the distinctly unsavoury undertaker. It's impossible to imagine anyone else in these roles or playing them anywhere near as well. As Hammer began its descent in the 1970s, it still worked best when it invested in what it has always been its most valuable currency, and that is top quality acting and behind the scenes talent. When done right, this can carry everything else in a Hammer production along with it, regardless of what the budget might be. And it was really only on the very rare occasions where they skimped on this vital ingredient that the result was most likely to fall short. But it certainly doesn't in this film. Our masters of ceremonies, Beswick and Bates, lead their cast like a Victorian music hall repertory company to deliver... 
a peerless and prurient performance of palacely paired and perilously potion-parted opposing personality. It sounds like you're doing your best Stan Lee. <laughs> Excelsior! <laughs> Well, there's only one way to follow that up, Alistair, is we have to roll the die. We do. To decide what, decide what we're going to be talking about next. Three, new territory, the mummy. Fantastic. The mummy. Shall we start at the beginning? I'm flexible. We can start at the beginning because I, I, I love that one. So we can start anywhere you want, but yes. It is a genuine classic, and I, and I think um, it'll make a nice contrast to go from um, Hannah's last days back to the very the very start of, of Hannah Horror. I love The Mummy. It has aspects of sort of action horror, which are carried on all the way through to the Brendan Fraser films. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, this is, this is going to be good. I bet I, we both can't wait to get wrapped up in it. Done extremely well there, Stephen, and that is Pharaoh-nuff. <laughs> so listeners, we're glad you listened to this episode with us, and I hope you join us next month when we do The Mummy. But as always, leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com to let us know what you think about the show, and again, what movies would you pick if you had these particular die rolls? Everybody have a great day. And watch more Hammer. Goodbye, everybody. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.